Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host as always, Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good day, man. I tell you, what a what a weekend for all things starting last Thursday right on through to today has been just crazy, crazy stuff at work from uh, certificates expiring and that all the follow that that causes to, you know, the stress of trying to diplomatically communicate on a potentially, uh, let's say, sensitive topic to people that you feel strongly about inside of your company. It's It's been one heck of a ride, I tell you. When you do that, when you come home and you say that to yourself or you think that or you have that kind of day and you unwind, do you say to yourself, at the end of the day, at least I'm thankful that this is what's going to continue to provide me job security because if X, Y, and Z happens, they're always going to need Steve. You know, honestly, I don't give it much thought. Um, even though my job does stress me out, it it is one of those things that I truly love my job. I really do. And so it rolls off my shoulders pretty easily. Like it may build up on a given day, but then, you know, I do some exercise, I go to bed, I wake up the next day and it's usually rolled off my shoulder. But um, in this case, it, it's just, it was one day after another and it wasn't terrible. It mm. was just, you know, uh, I, I'm happy you? for my work, but it, it was, uh, it was a trial. Let me tell you. All right. Well, I'll tell you what will help Steve. I think getting some Linux goodness and some Linux questions answered I'll probably make you feel a whole lot better. As always. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. That is the number to join us. You can call. You can text that same number. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. We're very inflexible with how we take your communication. Joining us is Josh. He's from Grand Forks. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, Noah. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. Say, I have a question. Uh, My parents are getting up there in age, and they attend a a small-town community church, and my dad is having some troubles hearing the minister as he preaches. And so I'm—the church already has like a, a, I don't know, like a loudspeaker or a PA system to kind of, you know, uh, for the—just to amplify the audio, the everybody speaking. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for— some sort of uh, assistive assistive listening devices for people with, that are hard of hearing? Yeah. Um, so there's a, you have a couple different routes. So if you go the actual assisted uh, listening route, typically the way that that will work is they they have devices where you'll buy like one transmitter and then you'll get like five receivers. Um, and so I can certainly give you a link to something like, and there's a lot of them out there. Um, I think it's like, uh, Rhett 
Reticus or something like that is a, is is like the 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 inexpensive Amazon brand. They're like it's like two hundred bucks, um, and for that you'll get the transmitter and the receiver. So you could just go to the church and say. Hey, uh, you know, I have some trouble hearing. Is there any possibility you could connect this to your sound system and hand them the transmitter and then your dad could put the, could put any sort of headphones or earbuds or however he wants to listen. Uh, he could plug it in and, and do it that way. The other thing that you could explore is looking at some sort of an, uh, a wireless, uh, IEM or in-ear monitor. So these are typically designed for musicians, but the nice thing in your case is, if it's just your dad that needs it, you don't really need to have the, you know, you don't really need to buy a thing that has five transmitters and, 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 and or f- yeah, five receivers and one transmitter. You could potentially just get away with a little box that has a transmitter and then one little body pack. And then you could plug his earbuds or again, headphones in and that would work and would be about half the price. I think they sell for like a hundred bucks. Do you mind if I ask, is this a church here in town? It's not. It's out in the country. Can you give me a ballpark of how far out of Grand Forks it is? Mile-wise or, uh, or 90 time? miles. 90 miles? Yep. I'll, I'll tell you, here's here's what I'll do, uh, Josh. I, I'm going to put in the show notes uh, at podcast.asknoahshow.com, I'll have some links to, to the two that I'm looking at. Um, one is the actual assistive listening. It's actually designed for what you're asking about. Um and the other one is really geared towards musicians and in-ear monitors, but I think it would work in your case just as good and, and would probably cost uh, a lot less money. Um, if the church, if, if you, if you show this to your dad and say, Hey, here's, yeah, I called some crazy guy on the radio and here's what he said. Uh, and he says, yeah, that, that would be really great. I really want to do that. And he has any trouble, uh, you give me a call back or give me a call at UltaSpeed and we'll send somebody out there to uh, to help the church set this up or help your dad set this up and uh, we won't bill you anything we'll we'll just help you out so if if you run into if you if you look at it and you say yep that's real easy and the church sound guy knows exactly what to do um then great we solved your problem but if we don't solve your problem uh and you have any questions then we certainly want to walk with you all the way to the end of this so uh, you just give me a call back and we'll help you out yeah, that'd be great. I uh, I did some research on Amazon, and I bought, I believe I bought already the 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 cheap system that you were referring to. Oh, okay. Uh, he hasn't had a chance to try it out yet. I'm just worried that you know it was it cost a hundred bucks. It was one transmitter, two receivers, mm-hmm. and I'm just I'm worried that you know we're going to get exactly what we paid for. Uh, I did find another system. I think it was Williams Audio. Okay. okay. I don't remember what the exact name was. Anyways. They had a transmitter, and you could all you could pick up the signal from a uh, a body pack. Okay. Or they had an app which would stream to. Uh, so then that way you know you could you know other people it wouldn't necessarily have to be my dad but all you know the entire congregation is 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 getting up there in age you know and uh, if they had a smartphone all they do is download the app and. Easy peasy, you got your own device. Yeah. Uh, my concern is, you know, if we go with that cheaper system that, you know, in a, when they have like a large funeral, mm-hmm. you know, and there's all these people with their wireless devices bringing in their wireless garbage, it, I'm worried that there's going to be so much interference that, you know, those those receivers are going to be rendered useless. And I was just kind of 
you know, wondering if I could get your your take on that. Yeah, no, that, that. that that's an excellent question. So um, what we look for there is you're looking for what frequency do, do these devices operate on? And typically these uh, wireless assisted hearing devices are going to be on the UHF band. So that's going to be somewhere in the uh, 400 to maybe eight, 900 megahertz, somewhere in there. Uh, or for maybe we'll say 600 megahertz. Um, typically there aren't a lot of other devices operating in that frequency. If you were to purchase something that operated in like the 2.4 gigahertz band, I would say you potentially have a huge problem because everybody that walks in that has Wi-Fi on their phone is potentially creating noise on that frequency spectrum. Um, in general, I think it, particularly if you're out in the country, uh, you're going to get away from from a, a lot of what would be interference. I, I'll add this just in the interest of of, uh, of a full, giving you all of the information. So you said, hey, this is a little bit on the less expensive side. You know, are you going to run into problems? The, the go-to brand for personal assistive hearing is a company called Telex, T-E-L-E-X. And um, you're certainly going to get a very high quality device. The receivers are going to be high quality. The transmitters are going to be high quality. You're going to get a slightly higher uh, transmitter power that you're going to get with the Telex than you'll get from some of the cheaper, you know, Chinese knockoff ones. Um, but they're except they're considerably more expensive to the point that you they don't even publish their pricing. You have to get in contact with the sales rep and say, hey, we're looking at doing this. And then they'll quote out a system for you. Um, so if 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 you hit the point or where you're asking yourself the question, you know, what's the industry standard or what could I buy or what could the church buy where we know we're getting what we want out of it? Um, I would tell you, you might look at something like Telex, but I, I, I'm in a lot of environments, Josh, and I see a lot of other brands being used. Um, it's only large schools, large conference halls, courtrooms, stuff like that, that go and spend the money on Telex stuff. Okay. So, yeah, I'll take a look at those links that you post in the show notes, and, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, do that. I appreciate the call. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Just like Josh did, you can make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our first email comes in from Dave. Dave writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I heard you read my letter, and you said you weren't sure how to connect the project together. Here are some details that might help. The first thing, I've attached a smoke detector shutoff circuit PDF. The second thing is a list of parts that you can buy off the internet, and he links to automateddirect.com. I, I guess I should back up a little bit. This is in reference to a few episodes ago. Uh, I was talking about a charging system I built in uh, my sunroom, and the idea there was, well, what happens if I'm charging all these Type-C devices at 65 watts and one of them decides to erupt into flames? What do we do about that? So uh, Dave was kind enough to write in and say, hey – Maybe what you would do is configure a smoke detector to automatically shut off AC power to that charging station in the event that it detects a fire. And I said, that sounds great. I just don't know how to do that. So Dave wrote in and sent me a PDF diagram. The circuit uses a yellow and blue wires that are the output from the SM120X. These wires are connected as long as no smoke is detected. In other words, there's a, a circuit that's closed. The rest of the circuit adds a manual reset. That means if a smoke is, is detected, the circuit will remain off until a human comes in and presses the green button. The circuit also has a heavy-duty connector relay to actually shut the, the 
uh, circuit on or off to the charging station. So that really is what's converting the small little low volt uh, closed contact system into actually passing high volt AC current. Just select a Kitty brand AC smoke detector, hook the smoke detector up to the black wire, the AC hot or the line black wire up to the smoke detector's white wire to neutral, the smoke detector IO output wires to the red uh, wire of the SM120X. If you have any questions, just email back. Sincerely, Dave. So uh, thank you. I, I, there's not much more to say to that than thank you. I really appreciate this. So this is useful in a number of ways. In my particular case, potentially it'll help me not burn down my house. Also, by the way, my wife says thanks. Um, but the other side of this is I can think of all sorts of reasons of why I would want to shut AC current off. I mean, if you had, you know, a smoke detector over your kitchen or around your kitchen and I can instantly kill AC power to all of the kitchen appliances, or at least some of them, I don't know if it maybe would be rated for something like a stove, but, you know, shut off all of the other uh, things that could potentially start on fire. That's a really great way to have not only alert you to a problem, but actively resolve an issue. I really appreciate that, Dave. Ryan writes in with our second email. Ryan says, hi, Noah and Steve. I called you a few months ago asking a question about Unify access points. A friend gave me three Unify access points and I wanted to upgrade my single dumb router. Since my call, I have set up Proxmox, created an Ubuntu uh, 20.04 LXC container running out the Unify controller software, and I have the AP working. All is good. But in the process, I discovered the UAPLR is outdated. The UAPLR is only 2.4 gigahertz, not 5 gigahertz. I'm not sure how much that concerns me. I use 2.4 gigahertz 90% of the time with my former solution because the signal is stronger on average throughout the house. I think the UAPLR wireless N has a max of 300 megabits per second. I may be wrong about this. That is also less than I would prefer since I split across many laptops, smartphones, smart TVs in the house. Finally, the Unify software shows me a warning that you have an obsolete device on your network. I see there's an update available, but I'm concerned if I continue to update the software, I may lose support for my obsolete UAPLRs. What would you guys do in my shoes? Stick with the UAPLRs, three of them, for a while, until I need to run some Cat6 to best locate them? Upgrade to a newer AP? Consider another option? I've watched numerous videos on OpenWRT, which I find very intriguing, and I've considered this feature a to-do. I have a 5,000 square foot across two-level house. My wife, my kids have about six laptops, six smartphones, three smart TVs, and all of our TV watching is streamed. Whatever my solution, I assume it involves a mesh of multiple access points with fast roaming. As a side question, time permitting, you guys did not recommend Proxmox. This was something I wanted to try. I've loved it. The setup was pretty easy, and I've enjoyed the ease of hosting VMs on LXC containers similar to one another. Any reason I've not heard you mention Proxmox in a while? Are there strong reasons you'd recommend another option? Thanks for all the great content week after week, Ryan. So let's start here. Uh, Steve, if you woke up in Ryan's shoes, would you replace your outdated access points or would you just live with them? It would depend on <clears throat> what I was trying to do with the Wi-Fi. So like he mentions TV, but doesn't mention whether or not 300 megabits is, is enough, right? If you only have 50 megabit internet and you're streaming, then as far as I am concerned for TVs and stuff like that, that's fine. Um, if you needed to have the faster speed, that's a different story. So a little bit more there. For myself, 
um, Wi-Fi is not considered a critical thing. You know, our IoT devices connect to it and, you know, phones and tablets. But anything of any substance is, is as you know, we run Cat5, Cat6 in the house to make sure that everything is wired. So for for me personally, I'd probably live with it and start replacing them slowly instead of swapping them all out. Like if I had, um, you know, an area like an office or the dining room or somewhere where people kind of gather and sit around and would benefit from the higher speed other than just the TVs, I might do whichever access point kind of covers it there. What would you do? So I would proceed very cautiously and I would proceed very cautiously because of the following. He says in his email that the Unify software shows me a warning. You have obsolete devices on your network. I see there's an update available, but I'm concerned if I continue to update the Unify software, I may lose support for my obsolete UAP LRs. That's not how Unify software works, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because when I tell you how it does work, it's actually worse. If you have a Unify controller and the Unify controller has an access point that is no longer supported, at some point, what ends up happening is the controller will freeze any changes on your site whatsoever. Won't let you update, won't let you change any settings, won't let you push any settings changes, won't let you change so much as the Wi-Fi password. You're totally frozen until you remove those outdated devices. And what is highly frustrating about that is I know people, and we have clients, that the access points that they bought continue to serve their needs, continue to work just fine. No reason on earth they want to upgrade them. No reason on earth they need to upgrade them. But because we can't have a mixed environment of here are some newer devices that aren't obsolete and here are some older devices that maybe are obsolete but we don't care, they have no choice but to purchase new access points. So the problem with not updating, the problem with just saying, well, fine, I'll just run on this version forever. Um, every week, you're going to get people that are going to knock on devices and try to find new vulnerabilities. And as people find those vulnerabilities, Unify patches them and then pushes updates out. Once you stop updating the software, you're going to lose the ability to get those updates. So to the extent that nobody else is ever on your network and you're never really concerned about uh, security of the endpoint devices – and there are some things you could do to work around that, right? So you could not give them access to the internet. You could manage them on its own little VLAN and, it'll, and or maybe just remove the gateway uh, so they can't talk out to the internet. So, I mean, there's some little things that you could do there. But personally, if, if it were me, I would want those devices to be up to date. So I might stick with them for a little bit, like Steve said, and, and kind of stage the approach. But eventually, I would probably move to something else. As far as alternatives to Unify, so I'll start with the full disclaimer of we at AltaSpeed continue to evaluate everything that's out there. Cisco is just plain too expensive for most people. Uh, Ruckus is really great, but is expensive for most people. Plus, there's a subscription fee if you want updates. Unify is kind of the nice middle ground of you get a lot of the features of the big players at like a tenth of the cost. The only real alternative that I've seen to Unify that I would consider is the TP-Link Omada. And the TP-Link Omada, if you go look at TP-Link's site and you look at their uh, their version of the cloud or their uh, version of the Unify controller, whatever they call it, it looks like they straight up ripped off Unify. 
And it's kind of scary how fast another company has crept up alongside of Unify and is now more or less surpassing them. Oh, by the way, they don't collect your network metrics like Unify does. Now, on the downside of TP-Link, one, and the reason that we're not selling them and installing them right now, one, they're just not battle-tested like Unify is. I have plenty of hotels that have 300, 400, 500, 600, sometimes 1,000 users on a Unify system, and they just keep chugging like champs. When I can see that, when I see somebody doing that with TP-Link Omadas, then I'll consider them more seriously. The second problem that I have with the TP-Links, they ship straight from Shenzhen, and you log into the controller, and it tells you, like, this is made in Shenzhen, and all the software is written in Shenzhen, and I don't know, there's something about, you know, it's a Chinese product for sure. So for those reasons, you know, I would look maybe look back towards something like OpenWRT. I will tell you that scale, last time I, I mean, it's been a while now since we've been to a conference, but... Last I checked, they were using things like OpenWRT, flashing them on consumer-grade uh, routers and access points, and they were using it to power their conference. And scale will clear in the first like few hours the entire attendance of something like Southeast Linux Fest. So they're doing it at a fairly massive scale with pretty great success. So I think there's that's worth exploring. But uh, if I was to put a bow tie on it and sum it up, I would replace those access points. I would do it slowly. If you like Unify, I might just upgrade to either the UAP AC Pros or maybe just the Wi-Fi 6 models. And if you're looking for something else, I would look at something like the TP-Link Omada or, like you say, OpenWRT uh, and then find some decent hardware that I could run on and maybe a central controller to manage it. Our third email comes in from Tyler. Tyler writes in and says, hey, guys. I'm hoping to help out another Unify user. I wrote in a few shows ago about using a Unify AP and a Unify mini switch on questions related to VLANs. I've had nothing but extreme frustration with my Unify products, two pro APs and multiple Wi-Fi and mini switches. The issues I mainly ran into were related to the Unify network controller software not adopting or taking hours to adopt the APs and switches, as well as the APs constantly dropping client connections. If I, Ruby, if I rebooted my main switch, or heaven forbid, my Proxmox running the VM with the Unify network software on it, I would spend hours getting everything to talk again. Recently, I've had a breaker flip that was running the Proxmox, PFSense, and the main switch, which is an HP Procurve 1800. This caused the disk to corrupt running PFSense. After building a new PFSense, I once again spent over 24 hours dealing with Unify, refusing to talk to the Unify access points and switches. After almost throwing them all out in frustration, I found out what was causing my headache. I originally set up the VM running the Unify network software on a Windows VM. After the whole PFSense debacle of resolving my endless rebooting everything until they started talking again, I set up an Ubuntu VM and installed Linux version of the Unify network controller software. Within a few minutes... The network controller software adopted the access points and switches, and I've had no issues at all since getting rid of the Windows VM. I hope this helps someone out. Thanks for all your help, knowledge, and the great shows. Sincerely, Tyler. So, um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, where was the, I, I'm sorry, Steve. Where was the Proxmox question? The Proxmox question was in the email, too, from Ryan. Oh, okay. All right. We'll circle back to that. So, I, I, uh, so as far as the, I would, I would have predicted that, 
uh, you're going to have some trouble on Windows. It's really not the ideal operating system if you have to have something to rely on. I would be interested, though, in figuring out why uh, that was so problematic for you, because if it didn't work at all, I would understand that. And I would say, well, is it a firewall thing? Is it, you know, a surface? There's some reason that that's not working. The fact that it's taking 24 hours, I've never seen that before. It, I've, I've seen it where it doesn't work at all. I've seen it where it works right away. I've never seen it where it just sits there and works sporadically. Um, so I'm glad you resolved the issue. It would be really interesting to know what was specifically what was causing that problem on Windows. But yeah, the, the Linux version of the controller, I think, is by far the most popular. Most uh, MSPs or network companies that are running large, large deployments of Unify are running uh, Unify controllers on AWS and works great. We run ours, I think, on digital. Actually, no, we're self-hosting ours now. But we did for years and years and years run it on DigitalOcean. Work great. Ran it on OVH before that. Work great. Now it's running in a data center. Works great. Um so I would say stick with the Linux version. Uh, and um, small little tip, too, if you are using VLANs, I, I struggled with this for a while, so I, I try to mention anytime Unify stuff comes up. If you are using VLANs, what you want to do is set your port, your, your PVID on the switch to the management LAN of wherever your Unify controller is running, and then tag all of the trunks for your SSIDs that you want on separate VLANs. And that will allow you to run the controller on one VLAN, whichever one you want, and also pass through VLAN tags for all of your other SSIDs. I hope that helps, Tyler. And thanks for writing in to let us know. Hopefully that saves somebody else a headache. So, yeah, let's circle back to Ryan. I apologize, Ryan, and thank you, Steve, for catching that. So Ryan asked a side question, time permitting. You guys did... Did not recommend Proxmox. I love. I have loved Proxmox. Setup was pretty easy, and I've jo- enjoyed the ease of hosting VMs. Any reason why I've not heard you talk about Proxmox in a while? So I actually Proxmox is probably up there as far as open source virtualization platforms that I would look at. It kind of starts with Libvirt because I'm just kind of a a fanboy there. Um, but if I was starting to branch out into things like high availability and all automated snapshots and all that kind of stuff, I probably would start with with overt, but then right under that would be Proxmox and then everything else. Steve, have you played with Proxmox? Do you like it? I have played with it. Um, <clears throat> I guess it's it's kind of I'm at the stage in my life where if it doesn't apply to my my daily job some way and something else does, I'm going to go that route. <clears throat> Pardon me. So all that to say is I played with Proxmox. I like that it has ZFS support, um, you know, but at the end of the day, it doesn't help me with anything when I'm looking at trying to be, um, how do I say this? Be judicious with my time. Mm. So I could go and learn Proxmox, but then I also have to go and learn these other things. You know, pick one. Overt, Rev, straight up KVM, or VMware. All of these things I have to have exposure for for work. So literally no one is running Proxmox that I have run into mm-hmm. at, at the scale that I'm at. And so it just didn't seem like a worthy, a worthwhile way to invest my time when I already have to know substantial amounts about those other ones that I just listed. I, we had it deployed for one client and we didn't actually put it in. It was another IT company that put it in and we took over the client after that. And 
went to update the Proxmox box and found out that if you're running the community version, you don't get updates. Like you have to manually configure the update repo to go. I'm like, this is such, I mean, my gosh. So rip that out, put libvert. They've been happy ever since. Um, so it's not that I don't like Proxmox. I, again, I think it's up there, particularly if you want some of the high availability management stuff that comes with it. Um, but I, I, I guess I would tell you, I think there's better solutions out there. Um, but if you like it and it works for you, party on. Our fourth email comes in from Ray. Ray writes in and says, hi, no and Steve. In episode 281, you and Steve had a discussion about drive backups and encryption. I wanted to recommend an encryption program called Cryptomator. It's an alternative to Veracrypt. It's very user-friendly, has a nice UI, supports Linux, macOS, and Windows, and mobile devices. I had previously used Veracrypt and TwoCrypt. I tried encrypted partitions, encrypted zip files, but I found Cryptomator to be the simplest to use. The other solution, which I recently moved to, though it's more complicated, is to use ZFS, which now supports encrypted data sets. It takes a little bit more work up front, but once you get it set up, it works seamlessly. Also, the ZFS snapshot functionality means that it can be used as part of a backup strategy. What I'm doing is to have ZFS make snapshots several times a day, then nightly, and replicate the ZFS partitions to an external network hard drive. The Sanoid Syncoid tools are really useful to automate some of those functions. The frequency of the snapshots and replication can easily be adjusted based on one's comfort level. Thanks. Really enjoy your show, Ray. So, yeah, that all excellent, excellent thoughts. And I'll have to tell you, if you've not used Jim Salter's Sanoid or Syncoid, it is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And the ability to automate snapshots of a bunch of different things. I don't know if he still does this, but for a while he was taking around a little demo unit and he would intentionally infect a Windows box with uh, cryptoware and Hey, look at that. We click on the thing. Oh, look, all this stuff is encrypted. Watch. Click a button, run a thing. You wait a second, comes back, all gone, all back to normal. It was a pretty, it was a pretty convincing demo to say the least. Um, so really appreciate that, Ray. I will check out Cryptomator. I've heard of it. I've never really looked into it. I've never really played with it. So it's, it's good to have higher on my radar. And so I'll check it out. Steve, you ever used Cryptomator? You know what? I, uh, I have looked at it in the past and this is a silly, silly thing. And I completely admit this. Um, when I went to their website, when I was in- investigating before, all the screenshots were from macOS. And I was like, <laughs> and I couldn't find anything like they they have a blurb in there about it being open source. Um, but I didn't I didn't see anything immediate for what I was looking for. And that's literally where I stopped with it. I like looked at it and like the website doesn't didn't provide me a ton of information. And the screenshots were from macOS. And I was just like, eh, I'm not particularly interested. You know, you you say that's a silly thing. But the truth is, it kind of says a lot about where the developer's at, right? Because if all their screenshots are on macOS and what they're focusing on on their website is macOS, uh, what do you think the people that are using the product are using and, and are driven by? And they're going to fix the paper cuts that bite them. Is it really for Linux? Is it just available for Linux? Is it we threw it out there and maybe it's there, maybe it's not? Or is it truly vested in the open source community and the open source ecosystem and really centered around Linux? And I think, I I don't know, it's probably painting too, too broad a strokes with a brush. But to me, it seems like you some of that can be picked up subtly from what's on a website. Yeah, like I said, um, if I was in desperate need or, or even more of a need, um, 
that would be one thing. But because I already am fairly aware of, of my options when it comes to this, this style of thing, it's like, well, I just didn't feel like putting in the extra effort. And that's, that's why I said it's a silly thing because it's, it's literally judging a book by its cover. Yeah, that's fair enough. Our fifth email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, in the last episode, while Noah was talking about cold and snowy weather in the Dakotas, I was listening to him with sweet forming little puddles around my feet. We live in a big and wide, varied world for sure. A question for you, gentlemen. Nextcloud has a list of Nextcloud service providers offering a free account with space ranging from two gigabytes to eight gigabytes. If I understand correctly, every Nextcloud administrator has full access to files of all users on that server. So, how safe is it to use such a service to store crucial and critical data like password manager database files? Those files are, of course, encrypted. But still, doesn't this question also apply to Google Drive, Dropbox, and other cloud storage providers? After all, the cloud is just someone else's computer at the end of the day. What are the alternatives if the above are not deemed secure enough for the purpose? Steve mentioned in the last episode that he likes to GPG encrypt his data but felt that the procedure could be cumbersome for other users. Here's an interesting tool called Toom that just might make the process a little less cumbersome for everyone. What is Toom? I'll paste a couple of quotes from their website. Quote, take care of the skeletons in your closet. Quote, Toom generates encrypted storage folders that can be opened and closed with their associated key files, which are also protected with a password chosen by the user. And then he links to Toom's GitHub page. A not-so-serious pun intended for JT, a former Ubuntu Snap advocate writing a bash script that helps users remove Snap packages from their system. Is this news or a great troll on his former employer? Keep spreading the sharing the amazing thing called knowledge. I really appreciate the email, and I'll kind of work backwards. So I think the fact that Alan Pope wrote a script to convert snaps over to Flatpak tells you almost everything you need to know about the direction Canonical is taking snaps. Would add to that by saying if you go back about a year or so and look at a tweet, he said pretty publicly and pretty bluntly, I tried to fix this from the inside. Nobody seems to care. I gave up and I left. Um, but both him and Martin Wimpress are they're pretty dedicated to what they do inside of the community, and they have an eye for open source and lessening uh, the barrier for entry for people. And I think they saw Snaps as a way to do that. And when they didn't receive the amount of support that they would have liked from Canonical, I think they decided that they were going to side with the community. They're going to take off. And, they're, and so you look at what's out there. Flatpak just continues to climb ahead. And snaps have started to stagnate and you know when they first launched a a bunch of different universal app packaging the whole idea behind snaps was that you could run it anywhere and they canonical spent and alan pope in specific went around to all of these places and asked microsoft and asked all these places said hey if you help us get your software on in a snap package, then it's easier for you to update and maintain and deploy and all the things. So they had all of that going for them and essentially they kind of threw it away. But so to work backwards, um, yeah, tomb sounds fantastic. I, I, I've not used it before, but that is your best option, right? If you're going to store your data on somebody else's computer and you don't trust the endpoint, then your only option is to encrypt it. I would tell you this though, you should, everybody that encrypts something, 
should work off of the assumption that someday that encryption can be undone. If you give it enough time and enough computing power, someday that encryption can be undone. If you went back and tried to decrypt files from the 90s or late 80s, the kind of encryption that was used back then is trivial to break now. And so you should assume that 10 to 20 years from now, the encryption that you use today will likely be trivial to break in the future. So if you have something that you're like, under no circumstances can this get out, under no circumstances can another human being have access to it, you just shouldn't put it on the Internet. Full stop, end of story, no exceptions. If it's something that you're like, well, I want to be sane about it. I want to, you know, I want to use common sense and I want to be sane about it. And then I think you're probably fine to encrypt your files and store it somewhere else. Or you use a service like Tarsnap that helps you encrypt your side and send it back up. Or what's a spider oak uh, will let you encrypt on your side, local side, and then send it up to the cloud. But they're all kind of working off the same concept. You're encrypting first and then storing it somewhere else. Steve, your thoughts? So there was a lot to unpack here. So first of all, thank you for reminding me about Tomb. I had used it in the past and completely forgotten about it until you linked it. So thank you. I was it. Uh, it sounded familiar, and then I checked. It, I'm like, oh yeah, I've used this before. Um, so as for talking about Nextcloud and is it safe and and that sort of stuff, it would depend on how the administrator has everything set up and what level of knowledge that they might have some some places have zero knowledge where they they basically have you input a decryption key and so if it's a vm or whatever it is the storage um you know you can decrypt it i believe nextcloud has the facility for encrypted folders inside of it and so they you could look at that route i'm actually i'm like 99 percent sure that it does so even if you had access to an unencrypted admin account because you know that's how they set it up i believe you can still set up a, a user folder that is encrypted so it would it should be safe for that from that perspective um, but like noah said if you're worried about information leaking out just don't put it in the cloud our seventh email comes in oh i'm sorry i'm skipping ahead our sixth email comes in from steven steven writes hey noah and steve I wanted to throw you back to episode 11, where you described the multipass in open source hardware password manager. I purchased a multipass after listening to your show, and I love the device. Multipass now has come out with a third generation device that's complete with a Type-C USB Bluetooth FIDO2 small file and note storage and synchronization. I own four, and I've given many more to some of my employees. I could not be happier with the multipass and would recommend it to nearly anyone looking for a highly secure password manager. And then he links to multipass Steven. So first of all, thanks for going back and listening to episode 11. That was a hot minute ago. Um, but yeah, the multipass multipass is great and hardware pass managers in general have come a long way. So I, I had a chance to go take a look at the multipass and ch take a look at, uh, their, uh, latest generation and yeah it, it is very cool um i have gotten to a point where i guess i separate and say if it's something that's used for an online account somebody potentially has access to it anyway because it is like we just discussed in the last email running on someone else's machine so to that end i'm comfortable enough storing my password in an encrypted password manager like bitwarden which just gives me access to it anywhere and then i just secure it with a hardware token but definitely, if I was in the market for a hardware password manager, this would be darn near the top of the list. It'd be this or Trezor. There's two of them. 
Steve, have you ever used a hardware password manager? Do you like them, dislike them? I haven't really had the need to use one of these before because um, for the really sensitive stuff, the way that most places do it is they have like a rotating key that gets tacked on the end of your password for various things. And so it lessens the the burden on you creating unique passwords um, in not that you should, but in theory, you could use the same password everywhere. And because the last six digits or whatever it is rotates all the time, you're fine. So you know, when I joined Red Hat, one of the things they said is you'll never have to change your password again. And you know what? In seven years, I literally have never been asked to change my password. Really? Yep. It's because it's because of that. They take your, your base password and then they tack seven random numbers onto it from a random number generator that in an app that they give you. It's mm -hmm. very similar to everything else. And uh, that means that you never actually have to change that the password because it's always changing anyways. Interesting. That's really fantastic. And then if you did want to change your password, would it then update all of the passwords to use the new one plus a random seven digits or whatever? Yep. Today I learned. Our seventh email comes in from Daryl. Daryl writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I'm Daryl from Pro Privacy. I noticed that you shared ProPrivacyTools.io, and so I thought I'd reach out about one of our free tools. It's called Ruin My Search History. It's a free tool that helps people literally ruin their search history and stop Google from building an accurate profile when you're using their search engine. Here's the link. And he links to ProPrivacy.com slash tools slash ruin search history. If you think others would find this helpful, perhaps you could consider adding it. Please let me know if you have any questions. Thanks in advance. So, Steve, I've never used something like this, but you have. So tell me a little bit about tools like Ruin My Search History. What is it? What does it do? And why would people want to use it? So the idea behind tools like this, and I've been using them for years. I used to, up until very recently, I was using a, a, a plugin called Track Me Not. And the idea is you're never actually going to be able to eliminate your footprint from online. You just can't do it. So what you want to do is spam the various providers with so much junk that it's really hard for them to fix a profile on you. Sure, if someone targeted you and really tried to drill down into it, they'd probably be able to sort out the chaff um, by doing a lot of cross-referencing and stuff like that. But it's just another way for um, to, to confuse the search engines. And just as a little aside, it's not necessarily a plus or a minus, but you know those um, Google surveys that they send out and you do them and they give you some money or whatever? Um, my wife used to do those all the time. And then I, I implemented this track me not on, on my laptop and my desktop. And, and I leave my desktop on used to now it sleeps, but I used, used to leave my desktop on all the time. So every five minutes it would, it would run a search against one of the random search engines that I put in and she stopped getting surveys because it could no longer figure out like what our IP was, like what, why they should target her. So her her source of income really dried up on on the Google survey thing um but i have found that to be effective in terms of watching the online ads that you get it mm -hmm. it really it really messes with them pretty well um so i have so. to ask was your wife appreciative of this or was she like Steve, you ruined my deal um 50-50 i mean she married me knowing that i kind of have a tinfoil hat so <laughs> uh, it was a pre-known condition how about that well, that's fair 
Hey, you know what? We've got just a couple minutes left of the program, so let's get over to the newsroom with JT is standing by with the latest Linux news. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The Linux Foundation and Google Cloud have launched Nefio to automate 5G edge sites. Microsoft shifts its Sonic development to the Linux Foundation. Sonic, which stands for Software for Open Source Networking in the Cloud, could attract stronger enterprise interest for the open source network operating system. Razer's first line of Linux laptop is here, but it's not for gamers. A company called Lambda is now putting Ubuntu on a souped-up version of last year's Razer Blade 15 with Razer's full blessing, the aim of which is to sell it for machine learning and artificial intelligence researchers. Google has shared its plan to make Steam work on Chrome OS with Linux. Intel Raptor Lake P graphics driver support has been added to the Linux 5.19 kernel. The open-source project Coreboot hit a major milestone this week when Linux developers successfully installed Coreboot on an MSI Z690 Alder Lake motherboard. DistroBox recently released version 1.2.14. DistroBox allows you to run multiple Linux distributions inside the terminal on your Linux system using Podman or Docker. These containers are integrated with host to enable users to share their home directory, external storage, USB devices, GUI apps, audio, etc. LXQT 1.1 has been released with theme updates, panel improvements, and more. The lightweight desktop environment gets further refinements to improve the look and give users more control. Turnkey Linux 17 Stable has been released along with preliminary Raspberry Pi 4 builds. Manjaro Linux has released 21.2.6, the latest point release in their 21.2 release. This release comes with updated desktop environments that include KDE Plasma 5.23.5, XFCE 5.16, and GNOME 41.3. Krita 5.0.5 has been released with a bunch of bug fixes. The devs hope that this will be the last point release before Krita 5.1 comes out. And Thanks. lastly, Pipewire 0.3. Thanks, JT. Um, so I, we have a couple of questions that have come in via our questions bot. You can message the questions bot by going to in the Geek Lab, geeklab.ninja, and messaging at questions colon linuxdelta.com. So the first one comes in from ID underscore Eng, and, and he says, the idea of LoRa technology seems very intriguing, both for the idea of decentralized short messaging infrastructure to IoT and for monitoring in far-reach places. Have you heard of any exciting or active projects? So I guess, Steve, have you played or thought about LoRa at all? I have done quite a bit of uh, I'm going to say research in air quotes because uh, several people that I follow on, on YouTube um, deal with different wireless technologies. And so I live kind of vicariously through them because I don't have that much distance to cover. And Laura's big place to shine is how far it can go with low power usage. The thing that appeals to me about LoRa is the fact that it can be integrated into a number of different devices without a bunch of licensing and without a bunch of special radios and all of that. Um, the place that I have been following the, the, the movement on LoRa, as it were, is really through the Pine64 project. And I asked Wukash Adachinsky when he was on the program, how that was coming along. And his answer basically was, you can go listen to the interview, um, but his answer was to sum it up. Um, Lore is a great technology. They're continuing to work on that. Uh, Pine 64 will support them as that progresses, but it's not quite there yet. I think a big portion of where Laura is 
making some headway is in IoT devices and or uh, if you're like out in a field, that kind of stuff, and you're trying to gather information or communicate with devices out in the field, I think Laura seems to be a, 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 a popular choice there. But anything that has decentralized messaging, particularly if you don't need uh, an infrastructure, seems like that has far-reaching consequences for uh, developing countries because they don't have cell phone towers every few feet. Um, and so I think that's pretty cool. Our second question from the questions bot comes in from Brule. Brule says, my mother would like me to digitize her entire music collection. We're talking 150 to 200 CDs. I'd like to put it all onto a hard drive, but I'd also like to back it up to a long-term storage medium that prevents bit rot. What would you recommend for long-term storage? Are there any high-density CDs or Blu-ray discs for this? Steve, what would you do to back up 1,500 to 200 CDs? Oof. Uh, buy lots of CD-ROMs. Um, and I only say that kind of flippantly if we're talking about CDs and not Blu-rays because um, they're cheap. And you could actually set up – back in the day, we used to have a machine that had six or seven of these uh, CD drives mm -hmm. set up. And you basically could – I don't want to say automate, but you could have a bunch of ripping going at a time. There are other options out there. Um, it depends on how, how vital this is to you because I believe you can get things like carousels that will plug in externally and you could just load them up with disks and you know have them – cycle through very similar to what we used to do with tape drives. Mm. Um, although having said that 200 CDs is one of those things I might just sit down and watch a hockey game and rip them while I was watching a hockey game or something because CDs don't take that long anymore. Um, Blu-ray is a different story. Yeah. There's a little bit more, a uh, little bit more data involved there. I, I would tell you, so you could do, you could, you could, you could back them up to Blu-rays, right? There are long-term archivable Blu-rays that are supposedly designed to last 100 years. Now, I would qualify that by telling you I have plenty of CDs that were designed to last uh, however many years that are now coffee coasters in my house. So take that for what it's worth. Um, but the other thing you could do, rip it all, put it onto some sort of you know machine or thing that she can play them, and then just take three hard drives and copy the data onto them, and I just fire them up once a year and make sure that all the data is still there and everything is still working and um, could go that route. Um, if it's the other thing is if it's, I mean, I can't imagine a music collection is very private. So you could also rip 200 CDs and just upload them somewhere and put them on, uh, you know, uh, spider Oak or, uh, tar snap, something like that. If, if you are going to put them on hard drives, it needs to be spinning rust though. Yes. Unless you're going to be plugging them in all the time because, uh, bit rot happens on, the solid state drives over time because they take electrical charge in order to, to retain the information in their cells. So they, they are not at all suitable for taking off and shoving on the shelf somewhere. Gosh, darn storing data on Silicon. What a pain, huh? <laughs> hey, with the last few minutes of the show, I want to make a plug for Southeast Linux fest. It's coming back in person this year and i couldn't be more excited so i it's hot off the press this is i think breaking i don't know if it's uh, available anywhere else it's not on the site yet but L southeast linux fest is happening this year it's happening in person so come and join us 
in North Carolina. We would love to see you there. So it's, the dates are going to be June 10th, 11th, and 12th. Uh, it's locked in with the hotel. Everything is solid. It's, it, it, it's good to go. The only thing they're waiting on is the registration links and the booking links. So very soon, if you watch SoutheastLinuxFest.org, you will see within the next week or so, uh, registration links to sign up for the event as well as a booking link so that you can book a hotel room. Now, I've been to, I think, all of the major Linux conferences out there, and I will tell you that self holds a special place in my heart for the following reasons. First of all, entirely community-driven, entirely community-driven. I run into so many cool people that I sit next to in a talk session or in a workshop, and I look over and I'm like, whoa, you're that guy. You did that thing. Like, how cool is that? And that happens over and over and over again. I will tell you, I met one of my good friends, uh, Mr. Steve Ovens at Southeast Linux Fest. Um, so the other thing I like about it, it very family oriented. There's a lot of the fests that have kind of gone the more corporate route and it feels corporate. Uh, self is not that. It's a very down to earth, uh, Cool, just family-driven, community-oriented conference. So June 10th, 11th, and 12th, we invite you to uh, to to come out and hang out with us. We'll be at the Sheraton. Um, it's going to be a great time. More information will come out as time rolls on, but save the date, June 10th, June 11th, and June 12th. Southeast Linux Fest, I hope to see you there. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. That does it for this hour. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You're welcome to join us live at AskNoahShow.com. During the meantime, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux. Evan, the show is at AskNoahShow. You can find all the show notes and resources at podcast.AskNoahShow.com. And we'll see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.